Work in Progress is a new weekly show from Slack about the meaning and identity we find in work. Featuring deep, personal, funny stories not only about what we do for a living or how we do it, but why. You'll hear about a cab driver who in the 1830s escaped enslavement in Kentucky and found freedom in Toronto, driving a hackney cab. And from a man who was a professional snap traveler on Snapchat. Kennedy Space Center came up on the caller ID, and this is the most important phone call your mom's ever going to get in her whole life. I'm really good at Snapchat. You know, how can I make money there? So you're telling me there is a secret radio station by cabbies for cabbies. Yep. Work in Progress is hosted by Dan Meisner and can be heard on Sirius XM, iTunes, and everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about Work in Progress at slack.com slash podcast or on Twitter at Slack Stories. This episode of Nocturne is brought to you with the support of Stay Roasted. Stay Roasted is like a record of the month club, but for coffee. It's the ultimate fresh roasted coffee subscription. You choose from dozens of America's top craft coffee roasters to create your personal roaster lineup. Decide how much coffee you want delivered and how often, and exceptional fresh beans appear like magic on your doorstep. And when it's refill time, your next roaster is queued and ready to roast. I went through the list and chose dark roast, single origin, organic beans, and I was delighted with what arrived. Try it for yourself by going to stayroasted.com slash nocturne to get your first bag of coffee for free. You only pay shipping. After that, plans start at only 60 cents per brewed cup, and there's no commitments. They also have gift cards available, and Stay Roasted makes the perfect holiday gift for any coffee lover. Get the local coffee roaster experience no matter where you live. Again, that's stayroasted.com slash nocturne. You're listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Between the release of the last episode and now, a lot has changed where I live. Speaking personally, I'm shaken. I've always valued the ideal of the United States as a place where differences are celebrated and where a helping hand is a good thing. I'm worried about the new tone of divisiveness and separation and selfishness. So I'm really happy to be continuing to tell a story about a group of people who put camaraderie before self-interest, because it reminds me that humans really do have the capacity to take care of each other, even when it might be tempting to put our own interests first. The last episode, Proof of Passage, was sort of a deep dive into the world of randoneering and the extreme and otherworldly experiences that come with cycling long distances through the night. If you haven't heard it, you may want to back up and listen to that first. Just to recap, though, randoneering is a non-competitive sport in which cyclists complete rides of various lengths to qualify for the penultimate ride, which occurs every four years in France, the 1,200-kilometer Paris-Brest-Paris. The ethos of randoneering emphasizes personal challenge and camaraderie, with riders sacrificing their own time to help others complete the rides. Randoneers share the goal of having everyone make it to the finish line. In the last episode, we met Rob Hawks and Max Paletto, two die-hard randoneers in the San Francisco Bay Area. They both talked about how much of the challenge of longer rides, or brevets, is identifying and managing fatigue. At Paris Brest Paris, or PBP, people stay up all night to cheer on the riders. Families line the streets even in the dead of night, offering food, coffee, water, and moral support. There are cafeterias and places to sleep. Most other randoneering events outside of PBP are unsupported. 
Riders are expected to be self-sufficient and prepared for every eventuality. But it can often be difficult for riders to figure out when to push themselves and when to acknowledge that they're just too tired or depleted to continue safely. The effects of riding through the night without sleep can be disastrous. Of course, the goal for riders is to have fun and push their limits, not die. So the San Francisco Club started doing something different for the 600-kilometer ride from San Francisco to Fort Bragg and back. Here's Rob Hawks, the regional brevet administrator of the San Francisco Randonneurs. Many people have never ridden through the night when they attempt their first 600K. They've never done anything else quite like that. It's not a trivial thing for us, and we do think about it. You know, I'm hoping that we can eliminate some of the behavior that might put ourselves a bit more at risk. Um, it's a hard thing to, to tell somebody how to deal with sleep deprivation because given the same circumstances, not everybody's going to react in the same way. Some people, it's hard if they are tired and you can tell that, it's hard for you to tell them and have them accept it and act on it. We've gone from a club that didn't have much support overnight on our 600K to one where we have this campground just outside of Boonville. And so all the riders are going to be coming back and stopping there and, and we'll have hot food for them. We'll have some tents if people want to sleep. Opportunities for people to get off the bike and rest in whatever way that they can. It's, of course, a goal, a mental goal for people that they've been up to Fort Bragg and they've come down the coast and it's almost for everybody, it's dark by the time they get onto 128 and they're going through the tree tunnel that is the forest that you go through along the Navarro River. And so it's really dark there. And then you pop out on the other side and go through a couple of small little towns and then you get to this campground. And the campground is off the road a bit, down a little gravel road and once it comes into sight you know you see all these camp lanterns and you see people talking and there's a, a big campfire and it's definitely uh, drawing you there and some people have a hard time leaving because there's more stories being told there and there's great food and you get to rest and you get to warm up because it's always cold at night and so that's the oasis thing. I headed up to the campsite the night of the Fort Bragg 600K. I got there at around 8.30, and a jovial group of volunteers was sitting around the campfire with a little tent village on one side and a fully stocked kitchen area on the other. Hanging out at the campsite offered a rare glimpse into the affectionate camaraderie that exists between randonneurs. The volunteers, all randonneurs themselves, were waiting around for the riders to stop by on their way back to the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. So we've got a nice creek going down there. We've got some nice redwoods. Most of these are second growth, but uh, there are a few big, big trees out here. And it's uh, further away from the coast, so the weather is pretty nice. Um, at the coast, often you get the fog coming in at night, so it can be damp. We should be a little better off here. So this is the dead time, because riders are heading out to Fort Bragg. They're going to turn around and come back. So everyone who's going out, we think, has already been on their way out. And now we're just waiting for them to come back. We, we got food and beverage ready for them. If they need to sleep for a bit, we've got tents. And if they need companionship. <laughs> I'm John Potus. And, and you're the like 
quartermaster? Mm, I'm just the guy who uh, was willing to cook. A lot of people are nervous about cooking because you can be blamed for why someone didn't finish if they have trouble eating the food you created. And that's happened to me. I was the victim. What yeah. did you eat? I, well, I had a, two choices. I could get the meat stew or the veggie soup. And so I thought, no, meat, uh, that's not safe. I'll go for the veggie stew. And going back, you know, two in the morning, I'm climbing out of Anderson Valley on the big hills. And the soup wanted out. But I thought I beat it until I was descending to Cloverdale and it beat me and I had to stop and start spewing at three in the morning and of course when I stop and start spewing a car comes along and lights me up and so I just rinsed out my mouth and kept writing. So what's on the menu tonight? Uh, we've got a vegetable soup. We cook primarily for vegetarians and then there's a meat option so that uh, no one again has an unhappy event on the ride. We've got uh, potato soup that made from scratch and got uh, grilled chicken that we can throw in or just eat. It's, I grilled it with uh, butter and salt, so it's pretty good. And uh, also we've got uh, fixins for grilled cheese, you know, real simple carbs. And the uh, same bread we can use for French toast later on. And maybe egg and a bread. Then also we've got pancake fixins. And, uh, Oh yeah, and we have a, a wide variety of beer that, some of it's for the riders and some of it's for the cooks. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, coffee, yeah. espresso. If they need to take a nap or something, we've got tent set up for them. We've got hot food and drinks and everything. And then how many, like, how long do people sleep if they stop? Whatever they feel like. Some people go all the way without sleeping. Yeah. Usually the most you would sleep if you're gonna complete a ride. Um, is probably four. There's, there's sort of a rule of thumb of once you get over four, your body starts feeling like you're done and it's that much harder to get going again. Got a rider in. First rider. Each rider is heralded in with a ringing bell. They're checked in and then comforts are lavished upon them. 21, 24. All right. <laughs> Can we yep. get you anything, Dan? Okay. Um, yeah. We have food, we have beer, we have espresso. Come in. Yeah. You want a seat? You want to yeah, sit down for a little while? These towns shut down at night, so traffic disappears. It's just you out there. It, it's, it's, it's funny how much you find out about yourself on these rides. You could be out there all by yourself in the wind, in the rain, whatever, and you're just plowing through it. And you have to uh, grab the energy from within to keep going and get over those, oh, the zombies are chasing me, or, or all by yourself, middle of nowhere, it's dark, there's no cars, it's just farmland. A long stretch of lonely road in the middle of the night, dark, and suddenly you hear this coyote howling off in the distance, and that's okay. And then there's like two or three more responding, and... At that point, you're just like thinking they're after me. <laughs> and suddenly my speed increased. <laughs> if the ride's long enough and it becomes night and you're just out there. And it's just you, you know, depending on the time, you might have the moon up there. It might be raining. I mean, you deal with it. Um, it's just the weather. The world is you and you're making it move past you you know, as fast as you can to get to the next checkpoint or whatever you're trying to get to. 
and it's just like this little timeless capsule after a while. In the daytime, sometimes it becomes disheartening because you can see the next hill or you can see the wind blowing stuff. And at night, it all disappears and you're just riding and you just keep going until you get somewhere. With these rides, you know, there, there's often these perfect moments that make us come back looking for them. When you're out there on the bike, it's like everything is so immediate. It just sticks with you. The moon is out, the shadows, or the way the wind feels. You just live for those moments. And, you know. and the birds. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you pedal through the night and, and the sunlight. Yeah. Or it starts to get light. It's just wonderful, so peaceful. That's, <laughs> that's what I like about some of these rides is, is the peacefulness I get sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. How long are you gonna yeah. sleep? So, uh, let's see. Now is what, 10? Yep, quarter to two. If I get up at two, get ready, leave by three, I have plenty of time, right? It'll be cold. But yeah, you have plenty of time. If you finish last, you get the same stuff as someone who finished first. There's, there's no prizes for finishing first. <laughs> people still do it for time, but... But even the people yeah. who are doing it for time, there's still very much a sense of civility and camaraderie. Yeah. So if somebody is trying to make the best time and somebody else has a major mechanical, that person is gonna stop and do what they can to help that other person continue. It's the goal that we all continue our journey. We talk a lot about the mental aspect of these long rides. You really have to sort of stand back from yourself and observe what's going on. And even when you're out of your mind, you have to be able to realize you're out of your mind and just keep going anyway and realize when you shouldn't keep going. That's the hard part. Because yeah. a lot of people do keep going when they shouldn't. And there are times when you realize, I can't steer a straight line and it's dangerous and I should pull over and sleep. And you know, if that you're good at that, that's fine. But there are people, there are people who have gone to sleep in the middle of the road. There are people- In the middle who, of the road? Yeah. On the yellow line. There are many other stories, some ended up worse, but everyone has to learn and unfortunately sometimes you learn the hard way. So the campsite off the road between Boonville and Philo really is an oasis, a place of comfort and safety in the darkness. It's an attempt to keep riders safe by offering a place to rest if they need it, and at the very least, to make sure they get something to eat and drink and check in with other riders. Randonneurs take care of each other because what they're doing is kind of crazy and a little dangerous. I met another rider who provides a cautionary tale about why this is so important and what can go wrong. Melinda Lyon has ridden the Paris Brest Paris six times. She's been the first female finisher twice. Max Paletto has ridden with her many times over the years. It's a little misleading, you know, because you meet her and she's this sort of totally kind of unassuming, normal looking, kind of short woman. And, uh, you know, these rides start and there's usually some amount of aggressive riding at the beginning and, and you know, guys on sort of fast looking bikes shoot off the front and then, you know, 200 kilometers later, you know, these guys are sort of flagging on some, uh, you know, big climb, Melinda sort of spins by them and uh, it's very impressive to see. She's a very impressive rider. She's great. She's, you know, just like a, a very no-nonsense lady and kind of fun to be around. and interesting to talk to. I enjoy riding with her.
I started around 1990 because I found out as a female I was better at riding long distances than riding fast short distances. The French public is very involved in PVP. They really get out there and 24-7 and they're out on the road cheering for you. And um, I think being a woman sort of separates you as a, as a different person. So I used to be called the Petit Feminine. The Petit Feminine is the, the young girl. Now I'm just the Feminine. So they really embrace the diversity of the event and the fact that there aren't that many women, so they really cheer what few women are there. Of the 6,000 participants in the PVP, less than 500 of them are women. It's not a big activity for females worldwide. It's time-consuming. I think even in this society, the females are still the child care people, the people staying at home. And I think it's intimidating for women to be out there at night completely alone. It's probably less safe than the daytime. I'm not altogether sure of that. So when I do need to ride at night, I have a lot of reflective gear and very strong lights to illuminate me. I've never felt unsafe as a woman. I've felt unsafe as a cyclist. What Melinda experienced in the last PBP could have happened to any cyclist, but being a woman probably added another layer to the tension. I went to Paris, Paris, Paris in um, 2015 for my sixth time. And in the last five times, I had always had groups to ride with and friends from New England to ride with. And for whatever reason, this time I didn't have anyone who was at my pace. So I ended up starting with a bunch of, you know, everybody, strangers, which is fine. You can always make new friends. And the first night even, I felt not myself. I just didn't feel very awake. Usually in those rides, I get very, you know, your adrenaline really rolls and you're wide awake for a long time. And I just did not feel that way. I had worked a little bit too much the week before. And my job requires some overnight shifts and I just didn't feel very alert the first night. So that was my first warning. So 6,000 people start, they split it up into groups. So we're all not starting at the same time. My group started at 4 p.m. You have five, six hours of daylight. So at daybreak the next day, I actually took a little nap, which is a bit unusual for me. I thought I could stay awake for 24 hours just with the adrenaline and I did not feel myself. And not sleeping, I just, I closed my eyes in a chair for 10 minutes. That's what we call sleeping in randomness. I closed my eyes for 10 minutes in a chair. So then I felt better, rode out, felt great the next day, rode through the next night, still not feeling super alert. Melinda did stop to eat and check in several times, sometimes for half an hour, sometimes for as little as 10 minutes. You have to check in every 50 miles to make sure you're on the course. I had stopped multiple times for that stuff. So I got to Brest, which is the, you know, the end point, maybe six o'clock at night. And I started heading back towards Paris. And that was great to be the turnaround. You're heading home now. So I 
headed home and that night things started to get a little funny in my brain, which is not unusual and I'm not unused to it, so I kept going. The second night was a little more challenging, but Melinda soldiered through. I knew as soon as the sun was going down, I was going to start getting a little tired. My eyes were going to start shutting and stuff, so I wanted to get to the next control before it got dark. I was very concerned about the way I was feeling, so... My eyes were starting to see things they shouldn't have seen. Lights to the side and not sure if you were seeing something you weren't seeing. You know, so I got to the next control and again shut my eyes for about 15, 20 minutes. Melinda wasn't worried about oversleeping. So you're sleeping in a cafeteria with about a thousand sweaty cyclists, so it's not hard to wake up. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I had a nice meal with some friends I knew from England and said, all right, I'm going to head out. That night was actually not terrible. I didn't feel that bad. Felt better and kept going through that second night. Not a bad night. It went well. And then um, I was actually feeling really good the third day. And then that, as soon as it started to get dark that night, I started to have some problems. So I've been awake for over 48 hours, more like 50 hours. And um, I started to, not sure where, where I was. I wasn't sure I was in France. And uh, I'm not sure who I was riding with, who these people were. And it was upsetting, but I, as a competitive cyclist, I felt I should just keep going and it would maybe pass. I mean, there's 6,000 people, so you end up riding with a lot of people you don't know. But I started to feel paranoid that they were kind of sabotaging me somehow. I thought they were taking me off course. I thought that they were, at one point I thought they were attacking me physically. I thought they were coming at me with weapons. I can't believe I'm saying this right now. <laughs> so I finally got to this control, which was about 90 miles from the finish, very shattered and I should have just stopped right there, taken some sleep and I decided it was and, and I know this sounds crazy, but it's only 90 miles to the finish, which for that event, that's not very far. You know, six hours. So I just kind of in a fog was trying to figure out, I just got to get back on the bike and I'll be done in no time. I'll, this is just a cruise in and I'll figure this out. So I started off from that last control and just I don't know what happened. I just didn't know where I was. People were coming at me with, people were misleading me. I was asking multiple people to help me and I was asking them, "Where? how do you get it back on the, please let me ride with you. I, I can't figure out where I am and whether it happened or not, people were ignoring me and I couldn't get help. It was awful. It was just like the worst nightmare I've ever had. I eventually ended up in a town sitting by the side of the road. She thinks she was probably there in the pitch black for about an hour. 
I kept just drifting in and out of consciousness, really. And I should have taken a picture of the whole thing is what I should have done. I should have got my phone out and taken a picture, and I don't know why I didn't do that. The picture would have been to document where she was along the route. Because I've never really figured out where I ended up. And the police came by, and they said, are you okay? I said, well, I'm on Paris, Paris, Paris. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know where I'd ended up, but I, I was close enough to the route that they knew, they knew all about it. I said, I really, I don't know what's going on. I just need to get back to Paris and I, I'm quitting this ride. I don't know what happened to me. It was like two in the morning. So they said, we'll get a taxi. So I said, great. So they got me a taxi. And again, I, I was so out of it. I just should have said, leave me alone. I'll sleep for a couple of hours and I'll get back on the route and ride in, you know. I had plenty of time to finish, but I didn't. My thought processes were not good. So the taxi came and I said, I just want to go back to my hotel in, in the town we were staying at the beginning of the route, which was nuts. It was like 50 miles away. I mean, what was I thinking? I should have just slept there and just continued the ride in the morning when it was light, but I, I wasn't making good decisions. The taxi driver helped her put her bike in the car. He was very, very nice, and he put it in. But eventually I got paranoid that he was taking me not to, to back to where I wanted to be, and I freaked out that I wasn't, he was taking me somewhere bad, and I don't think that actually happened but she's not completely sure. I don't know. I, at this point, I've thought about it for almost a year now, and I don't know. She does think it's possible that the taxi driver was trying to profit from her confusion. I think there's a chance, yeah. Because looking at the distance and what he was trying to charge me was two different things. The scary part was I was obviously vulnerable because I was so, I was mentally ill for a few hours. Sleep deprivation will make you mentally ill. So we were driving through wherever in France, and this guy's driving along, and I suddenly realized I didn't think he was going directly back, and I felt very vulnerable. I was a woman and with this taxi driver in the dark in France, so I had my phone. I said, I'll just call my sister. She was the first person I thought of. Her sister answered, thinking Melinda had finished the race. Oh, y'all done with the ride? This is great. I said, actually, I'm in a taxi with a stranger, and I don't know where I am. And she freaked, and she said, what's going on? I said, I don't really actually know. And she said, well, I'm going to call the French consulate. So she, uh, ambassador or whatever, she calls gets the American ambassador in France. He calls me back and says, what's going on? I said, I'm in a taxi with a man I don't know, and I'm not sure where we're going. The ambassador, who of course could speak French, asked to talk to the taxi driver. Passed the phone to him. He said, you need to take this woman to her hotel now. And all of a sudden, we seemed to be heading more in the direction that I thought we should be going in my adult state. And we did get back to, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, he may have been perfectly above board, but I still think he was taking the long way. 
I was in a bad situation. I could have been, anything could have happened to me. It's probably the first time I had ever felt so vulnerable. I got back to my hotel. Now it's like five o'clock in the morning. I called Max Paletto. Max was also riding the PBP that year. He was staying at a different hotel. He had already finished the ride and I said, I did not finish the ride. I dropped out. I had a little situation last night. I am done. What, you know, want to go for breakfast or something? And he said, what do you mean you're done? I said, no, I dropped out. I had a problem. So he said, I'm coming over right now. She had abandoned the ride 200 kilometers from the finish, which, you know, given everything that I know about Melinda, struck me as extremely uh, uh, surprising. <laughs> I told her that, you know, we should have breakfast together. And, and then I just walked down the block to this little sort of patio area in front of the hotel where she was staying. And, uh, and she was there and she told me this, uh, you know, slightly um, crazy story. So he came over to my hotel and he said, what's happened? I said, and I told him the story and he said, but you know, you still have about 15 hours to finish the ride in your time limit. You need to get back out there. I said, no, no, no. I, I, I'm done with bike. That was too freaky last night. In Melinda's recollection, she was clear about not wanting to go back on the road. And he said, no, 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 you're not, you're not going to live with yourself if you don't go out and finish. You came all the way to France. You need to finish this ride. You only have 80 miles to go. Max remembers things differently. He says, dogged as usual, Melinda was set on finishing the ride. She sort of floated this idea and... You know, I thought, well, you know, maybe, I mean, this was a hard ride. Maybe you should just, like, you know, give it a rest. But I also, sort of knowing her personality and that she really doesn't like to quit, I thought, well, I can't really discourage her that much. I could certainly understand her not wanting to quit. Uh, on the other hand, what she described in terms of, you know, being on the side of the road and not knowing where she was, um, you know, I've had a lot of moments of exhaustion and sort of exploring kind of the boundaries of, my consciousness and fatigue and, and so on. Um, but I, I had never found myself in a situation that sounded like what she had gone through. And so that's why I wasn't super like, you must do this, right? Because it sounded possibly dangerous. <laughs> I don't think I pushed her forcefully. I actually don't remember exactly what I said, but I, I was like, if you really want to do it, I'm sure you can, but it might not be the best idea right now. So like, you know, if you really want to do it, I'll help you out. So we figured out a way to get me a ride out to where I had stopped the ride. And Max mapped it out on the computer. He said, well, let's figure out where you stopped it and we'll drop you off there. Based on information she had given me and you know, knowing the course, I sort of, I figured out where the most likely place was that she had stopped. And, um, and you know, a, a route to sort of get there quickly by car. Some other friends who had already finished the ride volunteered their support car to take Melinda back out. You know, I got there about noon, maybe, 2 o'clock. I had until like midnight that night to finish, and I had no interest in riding at night again. I was so freaked out. So I said, I'll just go as far as I can, and then that's it. So luckily, we had a great group of people I rode with, and we zoomed in the last 80 miles. We finished about 9, 10 o'clock at night. It was just getting dark, and I ended up finishing within my prescribed time limit. So it was amazing that I finished it all. Oh, I was amazed. I mean, I mean, it wasn't, you know, it was not super surprising, but it was also, you know, kind of impressive. And 
and a little bit insane, you know, considering I wouldn't consider her to be someone who like exaggerates very much. And so, you know, given how she had described the situation, I think finishing, you know, that seemed like a relatively big deal. <laughs> It's these super challenging rides where you seem to learn the most about yourself, and also about how important it is to be able to rely on others. In the past, in those PVPs, I was lucky enough to ride with someone I knew, whether I met them on the ride or whatever, then if somebody had a problem, you could kind of sit them down and talk about it. And this particular PVP, I, I was riding totally by myself, just out of circumstance. So I had no one to talk me down and say, you're having a problem. So I was completely alone. In, in the midst of 6,000 people riding, I was completely alone. I think I know now that maybe at an older age, I need to stop when those brain things go on. I can't ride through them anymore. I guess I, I gained knowledge that I need to know my limits a little bit more and not, not push forward as as much it's not safe at all. Often it seems to me that the the rides that are most impressive aren't the ones that are people finish fast so much as like where something you know bad happens and then they manage to recover. I really like this idea that the truly impressive rides are the ones where you're pushed to your limits and you need to find a way to make it through even when it feels impossible. Those are the experiences that change us and teach us what we're capable of. Melinda made it through the ride by drawing from her deep internal reservoir of strength, but she also needed the kindness of others. It was both of these things together that ultimately got her to the finish. You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Find out more about the other music in this episode at nocturnepodcast.org. Very special thanks to Eric, Roland, Tim, John, and all the other randonneurs at the campsite who were so gracious as I hovered around with my microphone. Thank you to Stay Roasted for supporting Nocturne. Go to stayroasted.com nocturne and get your first bag of coffee free please rate us and write a review on iTunes. It's a great way to support the show. Also, you can help by supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash nocturnepodcast and make a donation today. Nocturne is proud to be a member of the audio storytelling family, The Herd. Find out about all the shows in The Herd at theherdradio.com. That's H-E-A-R-D. Thanks for listening. <laughs>